HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and Three, we find out how Brexit could be changing the way that Brits eat. If you're not getting your food from the European Union, where Britain gets 30% directly, well, where are you going to get it from? As I put very succinctly, bye-bye fresh peaches from Italy, hello tinned peaches from Florida. Bye-bye fresh oranges, hello tinned oranges. Bye-bye free-range beef, hello hormone-injected beef. Tune in to hear about the UK's struggle to stabilize its food system on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Bill Creelman, founder of Spindrift, the first sparkling water made with real squeezed fruit. Spindrift has pioneered the beverage industry into an age where transparency and traceable ingredients are key, and works with family farms to source their fresh fruit across the country. Last year, Spindrift was on Inc. Magazine's list of fastest-growing companies and is available everywhere from Kroger to Sweetgreen and Starbucks to heavy hitters like Haven's Kitchen Cafe, where we sell a lot of Spindrift. Maybe not quite as much as Starbucks, but, you know, we're close. (laughs) Not for nothing, Spindrift gives 1% of their sales to environmental organizations as members of 1% for the planet. Bill, I am so psyched you're here. I think I've been psyched for several months now. Um, You are a huge inspiration to a lot of founders. You're someone in this industry who's universally well-liked and admired. And um, I remember out of all of the speakers that kind of came into the Chobani Incubator, you definitely had some things that stuck with me and that kind of ring in my ears all the time. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. I'm this glad is a you're treat. here. This Yay. is a treat. Um, I know that there's a lot of advice that I want to kind of like extract out of you, but I also 
do think it's helpful for people to kind of know about your background and where you grew up. You grew up on a farm in Western Massachusetts. I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just a, <clears throat> a little town called Leverett uh, and then uh, Deerfield. So very lucky. Didn't realize it at the time, yeah. um, but incredible spot surrounded by other farms and ended up being, as it turned out, really important um, just as a kind of a foundation for where food comes from. Do you remember, um, A, when you were little, sort of an appreciation for food or it was just kind of something that showed up that you kind of took for granted? And B, do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up? So I, I fell in love with food <clears throat> at a really early age. Like I was the kid who, you know, ordered uh, lobster, you know, yeah. stroganoff or yeah. something at age six. <laughs> yeah. And I definitely remember knowing where food came from. I mean, we right. would clip our mint for mint carrots. Yeah, and so cool. You know, the eggs were from underneath the bar, you know, so that, <clears throat> and, and there was some, something happened then for sure. Um, I didn't know that I was going to go on to do something in food, but I think what what was happening then is you saw people working with food and then turning that into a living. Right. And I don't, maybe those were just the people that were around us. Um, so I equated pretty early on this idea that you could do something in food. As and, a career. Yeah, yeah, as a career. Do you remember being like, I feel like founders tend to say, I remember I would take my dad's old socks and I would package them and then sell them at school. Yeah. Or, like, do you remember being entrepreneurial back then or? So the Massachusetts redemption laws passed in <laughs> 1982. I was, I was eight uh-huh. and we used to collect cans on right. the side of the road yep. and turn them in for five cents. And if you got enough, you could afford to buy some candy for the week. And we would drive my mom crazy pulling over constantly as we drove <laughs> the street. Up the cans, yeah. There were a lot of cans available when it first switched. Um, and then we just, we started doing other businesses like that. Oh, not all of them around food, but we, we were always yeah. trying to, to kind of fashion a business out of something <laughs> right. that we, we enjoyed. It so. tends to be like a through line. There's That's either right. like the entrepreneurial or like the very enterprising, you know, yeah. like just like the workhorses, they tend to also, you know. My brother was, was really industrious that way. I remember uh-huh. we didn't have a TV <clears throat> as a kid growing up and he, he made enough money collecting uh, these cans. cans to buy a black and white TV for $13 at a, at a tag sale. <laughs> and so, you know, we did, I don't know. It was silly, right. but it was, um, so you had the bug with the bug. Yeah. Yeah. Early on. Um, sure. so you graduated from college in like yeah. 96. That's right. Now, so were there, were, cause you started working on boats. So you clearly, hence the spindrift name, like you're a sailor. Yeah. I, I would or, say I'm a, or a boater. I like being around water. Water. My, my family was was interested in that and I became interested in it so yeah uh, and was there what I mean dumb question sorry was there water where you lived no not at all we had a river Um, okay so we were we were going out to the Cape my mom's family is from South Dartmouth New Bedford that Mm -hmm. area and I would say that's where we uh we spent a bunch of our time right and then the reason we went to the Cape and Islands is the house we we eventually moved into, they had a connection out there. And so we just piggybacked on, on their families. Got house. it. Got yeah. it. So you graduated from college, you met your wife in college. That's right. And you guys 
decided to move well, to we, the Cape together? Yeah, so yeah. she had the, I think she would look back and say the unfortunate, you know, <laughs> pleasure of meeting me at a time when I was, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do. And I guess that's maybe, maybe not true of all relationships, but so we, we started, she lived with me on the on Nantucket for right. a bunch of time and we were living in a two car garage that had been split up into a four bedroom apartment. So if you sort of visualize the length of Why a car. Why Nantucket? So this is where that, that family ended up uh, going. So this was not maybe the Nantucket that is today. That we all, right. all sort of think of. It was, you know, very much kind of out in the middle of nowhere and a, a real like working sort of a sea shack. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not a summer, not winterized. Um, and then one of my captains offered to let us live in his garage. Right. So. But, but yeah, we, so I think where you're going is we, yeah, this fascination with food continued and, and now I'm on a boat. I'm at point I was points I was living in the boat and then I was living in this garage and, but, but it's, it's, it's infectious. I mean, you're around the docks, you're around yeah. fish and food and the restaurant culture out there is super interesting and a little bit, you know, intoxicating. I mean, if you're yep. 19 or 20, yeah, you're interested sure. in these things. And so uh, that, I guess, solidified what it probably at the time is more of a passing interest into something that I figured I, I think I want to maybe try to do this after school. Right. And so that first business that you started out there was yeah. basically like a mail order business oh, for <laughs> Nantucket-ish types of foods yeah but to get people to buy them year-round exactly right. right so i was now i'm just trying to find an angle into this food world right and i i i didn't really know what i wanted to do i had no formal background in any of this and so but it was intuitive to me to say okay people love these things for three months right and then they can't get them for yep. nine so how can we make them available and, and figure out a way to get them to them and, and it was a chance to work with these incredible right island purveyors you know the guy who made the smoked bluefish pate and right. the the lobster guys and um the fishermen and and so that that was really the basis for what was called nantucket harvest and what was the demise of nantucket harvest <clears throat> profitability <Right. laughs> what's that <laughs> yeah well, that was that was the first of many hard lessons which is that the mail order food business, particularly predating the internet. Yeah, I mean was, predating the yeah. internet. Not even like now I'm really my, now I'm really yeah. aging myself. Yeah, uh, Maddie, what year were you born? Ninety five. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Cool. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. Thanks. <laughs> um, we need something stronger than spinning. I think. Um, but but yeah. So we we um, we what, that business is extremely seasonal. So think like Harry and David and Dean and Deluca. Yeah. Kind of those were holiday. The guys, the yeah. Holiday. So for six weeks of the year, we were just cranking. I mean, yep. we were moving a lot of Nantucket-based scallops yeah. around, <clears throat> and uh, and even juice bar ice cream. I don't know if anyone knows these are real institutions. Um, but then the rest of the year was really, really quiet. Yeah, and you have to make a lot of money in six weeks to which okay. we were not. Right, we really weren't doing. I remember the the horrible night, like in you know December 29th, when all of the receivables had come in and. All the bills were there, and I had like the pile of you know sales, and then the pile of bills too. And I realized like uh, the one, one was... on the right was much bigger <laughs> than the one on the left. And yeah, 
And so, you know, it turned into a hard lesson, which is that, you know, obviously <clears throat> this, this is going to be, this is going to be a long, a long road, but the upshot the upshot is we, <clears throat> one of the vendors that we are selling through the catalog was called Nant- Nantucket Offshore Seasonings. And mm-hmm. It was this great <clears throat> dry rub for grilling. And so we thought, okay, well maybe in, during the rest of the year, we'll offer these seasonings. And that's right. That's how we got started in the wholesale side of the business. So that rub eventually turned into yeah. a margarita salt yeah. with seasoning in it right. that then turned into stirrings. That's right. Yeah, yeah, we ran both for a while. So we had a mail order business in the winter during the holidays. And then we had this wholesale business. And <clears throat> One of the products we developed was a was the first you know rimming salt or sugar thing like you know now circa two thousand and one. Maddie was now six, and, uh, and we were. <laughs> Maddie, do you remember they came in these big tins and you could open them and then you would just take your your cocktail glass and dip it in the. Do you remember that? As a six year old, yeah, that yeah. was because you were in Nantucket. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Oh, you were okay. So you, yeah. Okay, you're right. Okay, so you may have seen these products around, but we I mean, now uh, they're, not they, they're that product, but <laughs> <Right>? unnecessary. <laughs> which, which was, I mean, it for you know, in retrospect, looking back at a stirrings, right? You were there were Bloody Mary mixes, and there were sort of, I think, like Jose Cuervo probably had some sort yeah. of like sugar situation, but you were doing, you were kind of doing a little bit what you've done with Spindrift for that category and making it a little bit more real and a little bit cleaner ingredient panel and yeah no I think you're exactly right and that was that was that was I mean I don't want to you know diminish that I mean that was a like an incredibly important time for us right you know to to have a cocktail category like seemingly emerge you Mm -hmm. know like from from nowhere and have all these premium spirits like suddenly I mean it was everywhere. I definitely, I mean, I am, I graduated college in 94. Yeah. And I remember having like a brunch for my friends and like making Cosmos or whatever it was like with stirrings. So I was a, I was, I rode your, you were on, you were your train or your ramp or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so, so it was, you're exactly right. It was like lava lamp, you know, Jose Cuervo, right. Mr. And Mrs. T's, that type of product. A clear opportunity to to improve the ingredient decks. And so, and we, we were lucky. And I think what we realized at the time that, that informed uh, Spindrift was like the importance of timing too, because mm-hmm. these things don't last it. forever. Right. Yep. So, um, so we needed to go after it and we did. And, and we ended up, you know, I, I think creating an, an awesome product that was um, really uh, fit with what <clears throat> consumers were thinking right. about. And, and so that, that's exactly right. That became. Stirrings. And you sold that. Right. Did you, did you know going in that that was a goal? Was it just time for you? Did it, was it like, I don't know how I can make this any better? Or so, Di- like- so Diageo actually approached us, uh, approached us after Wa- the Wall Street Journal did a profile on the business. Literally, they sent shot an email into our like you know that must have stirrings been fun. info yeah. at stirrings.com yeah. and we read in we're like that's interesting who's diageo right. you know why would they be interested in us <laughs> right so no i wouldn't say we were thinking about it at all i think we were in a good way just focused on growing the business right. and we we're you know grateful for any order we had and 
that people were excited about the brand. <clears throat> um, and so, so we, it was not calculated at all. But, but once we learned who they were and we thought about the strategic advantage of having like a gigantic liquor company involved, we, yeah. we got pretty excited about it. Yeah. So what would you say, because af- so that chapter winds up yeah. and now you're kind of, you know, you have a little bit of cash, you have two businesses under your belt and you know, did you know you wanted around three? Did you know you wanted another business? Were you like, okay, I'm only going to do it if it fits into these parameters or if I do this again, I'm not going to make this mistake again. Or I like, were you super thoughtful about it or were you literally just sitting there putting lemon in your seltzer and you're like, Oh, here we go. So I, I mean, first of all, I was exhausted. I mean, I think sure. these businesses after 10 or 12 years, <clears throat> um, well, uh, you know, you just, you're, yeah. It's fatiguing. Yes. That's one. Two is, um, it was also the, the way that we ended up exiting Diageo was hard. It was sort of the financial crisis. It was not, we had imagined partnering for many years beyond. So, right. <clears throat> so and I guess, but, but more, there, there was a sense that there was an unresolved, there was like something that hadn't really happened. And so I, I wouldn't say I was thinking, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go around, do another business. I, I actually really don't like the serial entrepreneurial thing. I right. think that kind of has a negative, like, oh, they're just, you're just churning out businesses. So for me, I wanted to, it needed to come from an authentic place. Right. So I wasn't in any great rush. Um, but, but I, I was interested in the sparkling side of the stirring business. We had a tonic and a ginger ale and some things and, where those products were available, they sold really well uh-huh. and people liked them. Right. And so for me, it was kind of natural to start <clears throat> then thinking about right. maybe going into that space. So why don't we take a break? Yeah, um, and when we come back, we're going to talk about going into the space um, and everything you kind of took from those past businesses and applied to starting Spindrift. I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Why Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including 11 Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. I'm back with Bill Creelman, founder of Spindrift. Okay, so the folklore is that you are tired, you're, <laughs> you've sold this company, you're sitting at your kitchen table, you're going for like your weekly or your daily, I don't know, drink you put you squeeze a lemon in your seltzer water and like the idea light bulb comes above Mm. your head and then the rest is history and now you're selling you know millions and millions and millions of bottles of you know so that isn't (laughs) is that maybe not quite (laughs) although that that would be amazing if it all happened it'd be a nice cartoon it would be a great cartoon i think (laughs) but i'd say pieces of it are definitely right which is i love carbonation that i was a big 
diet soda, diet soda guy. I think it was just a product of like the '90s and yeah. 2000s when everyone seemed to drink Diet Coke. Um, <clears throat> and and I and I do. I have a bunch of kids, and and I think if you're you know if you grow up on a farm and you're mm-hmm. you're a natural food kind of guy, um, at a certain point you're gonna start to scrutinize your own soda habit, right. soda consumption habit. And really that's what it was for me. And this was 2009. 2009. Okay. So yeah, so I was I was sort of now finally free to do some self-examination. Yeah. <laughs> and soda was yeah. one of those things. And right before, I mean, I Michael Pollan, like I kind of think of the world and food as like before Omnivore's Dilemma and after Omnivore's Dilemma. And that was 2010. Right. So there was definitely a little bit of like, aside from sort of like the hippie culture, which was always like against sort of quote unquote big food, there was this kind of like understanding a little bit more of sustainability and sugar and choices and, but it wasn't out there yet. It was still, it was still not. Well, and I think the other thing was there was, there's really not a launch of, there was not a lot of entrepreneurship going on in general in the country at that time. It was like right at the end of, the great recession right. and people you know, weren't starting things people weren't starting things yep. i mean people were just trying to figure out how to keep the lights on if they were in business yep. or get a mortgage or a loan if, if they were thinking about getting in business and so so I, I don't know it didn't necessarily feel like a natural time but but as far as spindrift so i i mean i i really the the idea was very simple it was and it, and it truly occurred in in our kitchen in charlestown and we were just sort of I was just playing around and thinking, okay, now what if I could make a product like fresh fresh lemon and sparkling water? Like, wouldn't that be great? And then I tried it and I said, okay, I just made it. It wasn't that hard. How do I duplicate that flavor at scale? Yeah. And I think that is every food entrepreneur's challenge. But you knew what a challenge it would be from your prior experience. I did. Unlike me, who was like, I can make this in the cooking school. It can't be that hard to make a million pouches a year. I did know enough yeah. by then <clears throat> that it was going to be super hard. Yeah, the real light bulb moment from that early stage of our development was realizing that, <clears throat> that no one had done it. Right. You know, there really was no either domestically or even internationally. We had not, we could not. I could not find someone that had done a similar process to that. And that is an important moment for an entrepreneur because right. I, I just didn't want to go into something that had already been, <clears throat> you know, that had already been uh, played out. And, and uh, it was important to me to really find a white space that we could right. do something into. actually. Yeah. So what were, do you remember your first couple of steps or like, okay, I'm going to take out my pen now. And these are the things that I need to get thinking about. I really, I really wasn't even thinking about starting a business. Like it wasn't because I was phasing out of one and hanging out with my kids and working on it when I could. And I, I which I think is, by the way, like a, a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't feel this pressure to create a business. Right. I had no thought of scale at this point or we need to hit these numbers at this time. Mm-hmm. It was more like if we can just if I can create a product that's really good. And, and I'm proud of, then there must be an audience out there. But I, but I will say, so the other outside external factor was soda was like starting to collapse. Yep. So this was like Bloomberg pushing through soda yep. taxes. Um, California was working on some legislation. I was interviewed like 
couple months into business somehow someone yeah. asked me like my opinion on <laughs> right. so, and so so there was there was this sense that the world was changing yeah. and that soda was finally starting to really kind of fall and so the other part of it was okay I like this product I see this big macro trend that's going to take a long time to play out could this be an answer to that yeah and that that was really that's what happened it seems like the perfect balance of like sort of tunnel vision but also like thirty thousand feet in the air you know so you you knew what you were doing specifically but you also you know sometimes i think founders especially we fall so in love with our product and we're not looking around at any sort of market anything and then we realize there are like four people who are going to buy it (laughs) they're going to love it but they're only four people. That's fair. Yeah. And I think it was so cocktail mixes were also a pretty small category. Right. They weren't consumed all that frequently. And that, that turned out to be a challenge for us as we yep. thought about scale. So, so that had to influence something. So to think now about soda, which is arguably on the like total other end of that consumption right. or water eventually. Right. That was really exciting because you just, you know that someone's going to have this a lot. Right. If you're successful. And and so we um we definitely I, I felt that gave me that confidence to really yeah. start to push. And what was the first product? So the first products or there were four of them were the the glass bottle yep. sodas. Two thousand and ten, almost actually ten years ago to the to the day of today right um and there were four is lemon orange mango grapefruit and blackberry and they were in those little or big they were in a glass like what you would think about as being a clear glass soda right um, bottle and, and what were they made with so they were made with a whole bunch of unpasteurized fresh juice wow they had a little bit of cane sugar mm-hmm. and they had natural flavors right <laughs> because <laughs> and they were refrigerated so right. that was the other, so <clears throat> the, I might've skipped over, but the, the reason no one had done it, well, I quickly found out is because the bottles, if you're not careful, explode. And, and, you know, and when you use real fresh ingredients, they're alive. And right. so you really, you know, think milk or you know, dairy or yeah. sort of anything that has a short shelf fresh life. Fresh sauce. Fresh yeah. sauce. You would know. You know now. You're right in your space. So yeah, you you so I I had to now keep them cold and develop a fresh supply chain. Right. Which, yep. As you're learning is Super um, fun. Mm-hmm. So now we had to refer. You know, soda and these ingredients were challenging enough. Now we had to basically go into a network that didn't want them. Right. Because they didn't want glass on their trucks. They didn't want to bother with keeping, keeping them cold. Cold. Yeah. So. And then the retailers didn't particularly want to keep them cold either because as they you've learned, space. they take up a ton of space. Yeah. I mean, these are huge, you know, cases. And so how did you kind of, because I know you were actively involved, like you were in every store, you were was, asking all these questions. Yeah. And I guess maybe that's a lesson here. Like you clearly had to iterate on your initial product. Yeah. It was delicious. It was great. It was it started off the whole thing, but it's not where you ended. So what were kind of, you know, how did you kind of learn the lessons and then how did you apply them? And do you remember being like, we need to get this in a can or we need to get the, you know, along the way? I wish I had that kind of foresight. Um, 
It, it because it really ended up taking like all of those like three or four years to get there. It's not, not that to, long. Not not to <laughs> scare you uh, with your own business. No, but, it's I feel so, short. So I think I would I would divide it like draw a line and put like things were working on one side and things that weren't on the other. Yeah. And what I was trying to do is work my way down the things that weren't working side of the list. That's a great way to, to say it. okay. Refrigeration is challenging. These guys are not happy. The distribution is going to be a problem because, um, you know, eventually we're going to grow out of milk and fish trucks right. in the Northeast. <clears throat> um, price point at $3 a bottle probably doesn't work long term. Um, what is the multi-pack solution to this? Mm -hmm. If someone wants to buy more than one, are they really going to spend $12 for four? Right. And I could go on and on, but those are, those are some that come to no, mind. No, but so, really very helpful. I mean, those are things that, you know, again, like we just don't think about. We have these babies and there are there are products. And, yeah. you know, it takes some hard looking like, oh, your baby, you know, might need a haircut. Yeah. I think I, I would say <clears throat> into this day, like I love this product. I mean, mm -hmm. part of it was that, you know, this simple question, like, can you put four products out into the market <clears throat> in the right place and do they sell and the wonderful answer was yeah, yes was people yes. wanted this, these yeah. products so the the bigger the bigger challenge of are they interested at all we, we'd started to solve i'd started to solve it was more so i i was just grateful to have an audience for that that first line yeah so i think many of us are to start yeah no for and sure it, and it never felt insurmountable to get there um, it just would require time and work right. and money and all these other things. So do you remember sort of knowing, okay, like this is a viable product. Now I need to go in and tweak it. Like, do you remember a moment being like, all right, this yeah. is actually a business. So what we, what we, I don't mind sharing. I mean, what we would do is we would always set kind of one, no more than three goals a year. Mm -hmm. And we would, we never took, took a bigger bite the apple than that <clears throat> and basically said if we can get these three things done we'll be in a better position to then move forward against the next three behind that so would one be in operations one a sales and one that's like, right is that how you we still do that we still have basically three headlines this so, year we have two you know i right. i just i think it's just impossible is it a sales number goal or is it like well, sales a, is always a big part of it but right. really sales is often the result of of something else you know if you've done a great job at this this and this right it's just the number at the end if you're if you've done a great job executing for instance in trade right you should have a great sales number sales on their own is can be a kind of a shallow objective yeah. just on it um but do you but remember yeah. early ones like just for people out there listening do you remember three yeah yeah sure so it would have been like <clears throat> you know pioneering for instance a second market so we had been in New England. We were selling okay, and you know Boston and Burlington, Vermont, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Western Mass or something. Mm -hmm. And we said like, okay, but this is probably because people generally we can. It's our own markets. Yeah. You know, it's my home. mom's buying a lot yeah. or something. <laughs> so you know, what about what? What about Washington D.C. or Southern California? So we actually went out to Southern California, right? And that's when Shelley, our first employee, joined on and. Um, and she kind of re-pioneered that market. Yeah. So I, I think that's a, that's a really important one. Um, there, there would have been one around operations yeah. for sure. Just, you know, making sure the product was, you know, 
we could make it at scale. And, yeah. Know, and I mean, speaking of operations, it took us a while to find a co-packer, um, to find a co-packer in our case that would do the small volume that we were doing. And they ended up investing in the company, which is basically oh, wow. how we are doing what we're doing. Mm. Um, what was that like for you? Could you, did you co-pack? I mean, did you find someone who was going to take fresh fruit? I'm sure a co-packer looked at you like you were crazy. Crazy. Yeah. We really upset a lot of people early on. I mean, yeah. it was just, <clears throat> that's when and, you know you're doing something right. Yeah. Well, it did feel like a proof <laughs> point, but we, we burned bridges and we had like, we just, you know, blowout fights, you know, we, we, the, like the pulp would clog the equipment. They'd lose a week yeah. of production or the pulp would show up in someone else's product, like, a week, you know, <laughs> for like yeah. five days later. That's not great. <laughs> and it just, and it was like that. It felt like every run there was something yeah. like that. And, and there's the seasonality of fruit too, right? Like oh my you can't gosh, seasonality get strawberries fruit. or whatever. No, you else, can't. Yeah. So we, I mean, we just, we were... How we sort of half knew what we were doing, half we were making it up as we went. Right. <clears throat> and um, but I would say the consistency of the product was really for for a long time the biggest challenge. Right. Just how do you make it taste the same each time, right. and not you don't run a batch and kind of cross your fingers that it's gonna yeah be similar to the last time you ran. And this podcast a lot, I feel like there are a couple of themes that kind of always come up. And one of them is just not not oversimplifying in your mind supply chain. I think that because there's been so much money, um, because there's so many products and because people buy everything on Instagram and you have no idea what you're actually getting when you swipe up to buy. There's just a lot out there that you can think you have a really good business with a really good brand. But there's a difference between a brand and a business. And I think a lot of times it comes down to like that supply chain stuff because there are people out there that are, have great ideas and it's beautifully packaged, but they don't have, they don't have a way of making yeah. the product and certainly not making it, you know, to scale like you were talking about. Yeah. You're going to get exposed at a certain point. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, and I, and I guess like, um, beverage I think is a little bit it's still the wild west and how do you qualify these co-packers and then how do you graduate from one level of scale to right. the next all of that is just as challenging as it's always been but but you know at least in our world you're building towards something that <clears throat> that is you know that is that is run in big numbers yeah. you know monster energy you know these yeah. are these are independent brands that are running you know billions and millions and billions of cans yeah and they don't own their own facilities so they're running somewhere right. and they're so using that, did it occur to you to build a facility at some point when you were yelling at co-packers well, and we they were screaming at you yeah we've talked about that before we we thought about doing our own fresh juice facility we talked mm -hmm. about staging facility where everything kind of is 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 um where we gather it all and blend it and then redistribute we've talked right. about everything um and, and i would say we still have some conversations about it but ultimately we found great partners right and which and, is great and with volume you know volume in in this space cures a lot yeah and so the fact that we could go in and we had somewhat regular volume and and we could give them some guarantee right. over time that that really they were helps more, yeah <laughs> amenable um okay so we're gonna fast forward a couple of years 
you broke into those new markets. You must have like crushed your three goals per year for several years in a row. Crushed them. Mostly crushing. Um, 2015, you're good. You're, it's like things are happening. You're winning awards. You're selling lots of Spindrift. And then you made a decision. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, I would say um, we were not hitting every metric. We, we, I, you know, I think that is, I I know you're saying it tongue in cheek, but I mean, we were having tons and tons of challenges along the way. Um, But, but still, I'd say the proof point was remaining, which is that people were generally interested in the product. Right. Um, So we launched the sparkling water profile in 2012. So we now had the soda and the sparkling water. And the main difference being the lack of sugar. The lack of sugar. Right. And, and, uh, and so we were, <clears throat> we are now faced with a decision, which is, you know, how do you pull forward two businesses right. that are that are now increasingly quite different? Um, and the breakthrough really was was not we were not pressured. There was no external pressure to do one or the other. This wasn't, uh, you know, a do or die thing. It was more a choice. Do, do, can can we do it? Can we kind of hold true to our own self imposed rules about? being disciplined and simplify to amplify. Um, uh, and I'd say the reason we did it was because we thought the f- sparkling waters finally tasted good. Mm-hmm. Um, Without the added sugar. Yeah. They, they had been around for a few years and, and they were okay, I would say, um, taste-wise, um, when they when we were making them well. But, 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 but in 15 and 16, we really figured it out. We we just had invested massively in the process and and really I think it got smart um, around the decision to get out of natural flavors. We kind of right. revisited the whole thing. And so, yeah, we decided to retire the sodas and, um, and get out of natural flavors entirely. So and you had how many SKUs of soda and how many SKUs of like sparkling well, We water? had six and six at the and time. And then, and you basically... You wanted to be done with sugar and you wanted to be done with this sort of like nether world of natural flavor, quote unquote. And yep. so you just decided to stop. Yeah. We just decided and, and I it's funny, like we we um we we didn't even really think about it as, you know, getting out of. We just thought that this the sparkling waters had the chance to replace the experience yeah. that that the soda was filling. Right. Which was also Again, tapped into this larger kind of macro trend. Water overtook soda at some point. Yeah. Seltzer was definitely like becoming a thing. Not quite as much then as it was sort of in this last year or two. And definitely I feel like people started really getting on like an anti-sugar yeah. kick. But I would imagine that that's a hard decision to make if you're making money and it's going well. So... I mean, what was that like for you? And was your team all on board? And was everyone kind of around you? Or did you have to kind of explain? Well, I think, I think you, I, I, I remember like, you know, overly being overly confident um, in order to, you know, make myself feel better about the decision, right. but also to bring bring everyone along. But I, but I would say the team, I mean, overwhelmingly, we have an incredible team that that saw very early on we all saw the same opportunity. <clears throat> we also at that time had brought over people that had been in sparkling water. So that helped us really say like, right. okay, we, we sort of see what's happening and imagine if we could re-experience, like recreate 
sparkling water. And, and at first, I'd say sparkling water just wasn't as interesting. Like soda has this right. kind of lifestyle-iness to it and pizzazz and it's fun and, you know, more carefree. Sparkling water was just kind of right. that boring thing that, you know, all of us kind of had around, but it wasn't, you know, you don't throw a party around sparkling water <laughs> right. necessarily. Not now you do, I well, guess. Well, now, now right? I guess, yeah, yeah, now you do. But, and so, but we, we did start to. We should have a like, sparkling water party. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> um, and so we, we, we started to say like, well, actually, isn't that what makes it even more fun and interesting? Right. That there is no personality that there, that be, you know, in soda, there's lots of personality. Right. Could we bring not just this whole new ingredient conversation, but but really like energy and humanity and kind of the same brand chops right. that some real feeling. And, and it was really that flip of seeing what was you know and like re reimagining it as an opportunity that got us super, super excited. Sick. So you said something a couple minutes ago, and we talked about it before we started recording because. I've heard you say it and it's simplify to amplify. So I don't know if, you know, how that came into your lexicon, but it, when you've said it now, it's kind of in my lexicon. So whether, and, and cause a lot of times what I would do now is be like, let's talk about sales. Let's talk about marketing. Let's talk about, you know, blah, blah. but across all of those things, you've, you've really kind of had this discipline to simplify either what you're offering or the process or your messaging or whatever. Everything about your product is simple in order to make sort of maximum impact. And I'd love to hear sort of the background of that, how you apply it, how you would offer to early stage founders to apply it. Yeah. I this was this was definitely something I learned along the way because <clears throat> I, I as an early entrepreneur I would just like you you know I think we all have this instinct of kind of grabbing as much as we can and we'll figure it out when we get there mm -hmm. <clears throat> but what I unfortunately learned just through a lot of you know trial and error is that particularly in a big crowded space like beverage it's almost impossible to be successful at all right yeah Let's say it's one in a hundred chance of getting to scale yeah. And so <clears throat> at the very kind of simplest level, like if it's, if it's hard to get one idea as a breakthrough, right. how are you going to get two or three or four? Yeah. And so, and we're all strapped for resources. We're all strapped for line time. We're all strapped for cash, you know, down the list. And so we started embracing this idea and I don't <clears throat> quite remember the genesis of, of the actual the words, but to say, Let's just make sure that if we add something, we're taking something away. Right. And so, in the case of um, of of you know whether it's the the soda example, or we <clears throat> we recently retired our four packs right. in order to just focus on one product line, and we retired probably a third of our SKUs. Um, right. We've really, I think, we've done a pretty good job at doing that. Now, it, now it isn't easy. So no. it's much. <clears throat> it's actually much simpler. To Ironic, ironically, to just kind of stay the course yeah. and to not face some of those like harder choices. Um, well, I, I hate to interrupt you, but I literally it goes through my mind almost daily whether it's like adding another flavor, you know, taking away one that isn't doing its you know what it should be doing, even though it's my favorite. 
you know, adding another, you know, retailer who wants us, but we're not necessarily ready for. Yeah. It's it's really hard to say no or to. I, to I think it's the down. hardest. I, yeah. I really do. Like I, I think especially, <clears throat> um, I mean, just by the very nature of being, you know, the the founder or the person who all of these opportunities are funneled through. I mean, you spend most of your day and, and you have to be thinking about setting the business up for the next stage of success. Right. And so isn't that just naturally adding more and doing more? And, be, and I think all of the answer is yes, it's all of those things, but it just, it can't be at the expense of doing what you do really, really well. And do you have a system for that? Like, is there is there a mapped out way that you make those decisions for each? You know, someone gave me the advice the other day to have, because um, I kind of, I don't want the tail to wag the dog with sales, right? I know that we are not for everyone right now. And yet some of the bigger retailers, they see an emerging brand, they think it's going to bring millennials, they get excited, Someone gave me the advice the other day to make a like conditions, yeah, list. I had it in my head. I'd never really written it out. Like, do you have sort of conditions? In, order, in for other words, everything? like for a retailer, sure you can bring us in, but it has to. It be has to be under these conditions. It has to. We have to yeah. know that this is going to happen. You have to allow us to yeah. do demos because we need. And to. And our sales yeah. team is unbelievable at that. Right. Far better than I am. Where they. And that just is confidence, right? Because right. you're going to turn people off to right. say, well, geez, uh, we'd love to sell you our product, but you have to take in six cues and right. we need to be, you know, in this place on the shelf. I mean, that, you know, that's yeah. hard. Ours are just so. like not that hardcore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ours are like, no, but you have to let us do a demo at some yeah. point. And, you know, we, you know, there has to be, we can't be below a certain price or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. No, but, but, the, but the discipline, you're, question yeah. is yes you you and it starts just it should really it should exist across your entire business i mean right. i we, we still we absolutely still talk about setting goals and everyone has no more than three i just yeah. don't and they need well, to be simplifying. really measurable you yeah. know and if we can't measure them then we're probably not going to do them right um or it's maybe not the right thing to do for for this stage of the business right. so but you need to be purposeful about it and it and it is, um, but but I but I do think once you set that as like a cultural expectation, yeah. I think it. I, I hear it now being kind of worked through the company, yeah. and I, I, you know, and that obviously is is really been satisfying. But I but but I'd say I want to come back to this idea that we all share that idea, which is very unusual, right? I, um, usually, for instance, sales, you know, wants to go. We got to go everywhere. Yeah, in our. We just had a very different view. We wanted to go into one account. Had we set a single goal or a few goals, and that was that was all we did as a business. And everyone worked on it. You yeah, know, Target was a very important customer, has been for a really long time, and everyone from finance to account, you know, the whole company. Yeah, said for one year, all we're going to do is make this hugely successful. Yeah, um, and it worked. It, it's amazing too because there is so much pressure. You know, we got to grow fast so that the competition doesn't come up on us yeah. or whatever it is. But somehow you've really been able to sort of like hold your space and like throw out some elbows and just like keep it, you know, 
keep it chill. That's nice of you to say. I mean, it certainly doesn't feel feel that way every day, but right. but we, I do think they yes. Yeah, so the, I mean, I would say we've played the longer game. Yeah. I think we just we've all done this for a while. We're not enamored by <clears throat> you know by kind of the, some of the sensationalism that goes around the space. Yeah. We really believe in the product. I mean, I drink yeah. like ten a day, yeah. and and um, um, you know, and and um, and and I think if you if you have a brand that is that is based more on like values and mm-hmm. things that are important instead of something that's happening, yeah. you know, environments externally, externally yeah. you set your up yourself up. There, you know, we know that the economy is going to do this. Yeah. The new products are going to come in and be super interesting and fun and have a great story and all these things. So we just, we can't worry about that. We can only focus on the things we can control, which is executing, making great product, getting it in people's hands, having them try it. And ultimately, hopefully good things will happen as a result of that. So for our last question, would you say that that's kind of your, your overarching advice to founders? Or yeah. would there be something that you wish someone had told you 20 years ago, 15 years ago? Gosh, wouldn't that be ago? amazing? Well, when Maddie, Maddie was yeah. just <laughs> starting out in, in elementary school. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think, I guess, like, my favorite advice, and really it's still something we talk about all the time, is just finding a place to tell your story. Yeah. You know, because if you are really my if you really focus on finding your audience early on mm-hmm. they will they will help you tell it yeah to really guide you to where you're going to go from there yeah and it and if you or but in the opposite if you just have kind of a a, a, a like some some heat coming off of a lot of places instead of like a really white hot center yeah it can be really confusing yeah. so i i know i talked about this from in chabani but i i do think that is like if you focus on only one thing, it's making a few, you know, a smaller number of accounts or a smaller story really successful, <clears throat> and then using that, the energy and the heat from that yeah. to really then power you, sort of, you know, the brand forward. Yeah, um, you are. I mean, it's interesting. I think that there's like a real return to that fundamental thing. I think it got really easy to launch things super big, yeah. and. I don't know. I don't, I don't know about the sustainability of that, you know, and I think things are starting to shift back to, you know, real people, real products, you know, sort of the depth that you're talking about. Yeah. That, I mean, those are, those are the, some of the values that just will never change. There's yeah. a lot that's going to change around food and trends and health. And, but I, I guess like we, we hope that that's true and we, yeah. we aspire to be a brand like that. Yeah. I think you are a brand like that. So it's um it's really fun watching and it's it's just nice when good good guys win. So thank you for being thank here. Thank you. This was super fun. Alan. Yeah. Thank you. Matt, thanks for being such a great engineer. Um I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. Thanks for listening. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.